I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to the latest of our We the People Constitutional Podcasts. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And this week, we're celebrating the 225th anniversary of the Judiciary Act, which gave birth to our modern judicial system. Article 3, Section 1 of the Constitution says, quote, the judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court and in such inferior courts as the Congress may from time to time ordain and establish. Article 3 goes on to enumerate the extent of the judicial power and the definition of treason. But the framers of the Constitution mostly left it up to Congress to ordain and establish the rules and institutions that make up our third branch of government, and the first Congress took up that challenge drafting a solution to the delicate question of how robust judicial power should be under the leadership of Senator Oliver Ellsworth of Connecticut. That bill, the Judiciary Act, was signed into law by President George Washington on September 24, 1789, 225 years ago this week. I can think of no one better suited to discuss this important anniversary with me than Jeff Minear. Jeff is counselor to Chief Justice John Roberts, the counselor helps the Chief Justice with tasks related to his role as head of the judicial branch of government, as well as the non-case-related duties that fall to the Chief Judicial Officer of the Supreme Court. Jeff previously served as an assistant to the Solicitor General of the United States, where he argued 56 cases before the Supreme Court, and he's held appointments as a visiting or adjunct professor at Washington and Lee University School of Law, the University of Utah College of Law, and the Georgetown University Law Center. Jeff, welcome, and thank you so much for joining our We the People podcast. Thank you, Jeff. It's my great pleasure to be here. Well, I'm really looking forward to our conversation, and I thought I'd begin by asking you to tell us more about Oliver Ellsworth, the founding father of the, of the Judicial Act. I, I gather he was the guy who brokered the, the so-called uh, Connecticut Compromise, which uh, was the compromise between large and small states in the Constitutional Convention, but tell our listeners who he was and, and what his role was in creating the Judicial Act. Well, Oliver Ellsworth was really a remarkable individual from Connecticut. Uh, he had previously served as a judge, had uh, great experience in judicial matters, and took a special interest in those matters. Uh, he served as the principal draftsman of the Judiciary Act of 1789, together with William Paterson. Uh, Ellsworth and Paterson both went on to be justices of the Supreme Court. Uh, Oliver Ellsworth, in fact, was the third uh, chief justice of the Supreme Court. He served for only a few years, a very short tenure. Uh, his greatest contributions, I think, were really at the Constitutional Convention and in crafting the Judiciary Act of 1789. So Ellsworth and Paterson both uh, crucial to the Judiciary Act and both also crucial in the Constitutional Convention, as you said, as architects of both the Connecticut Compromise and the New Jersey Plan. Uh, these represented a, a, a struggle or an attempt to strike a balance between the power of large and small states. How was that struggle or debate reflected in the debate over the Judiciary Act, where I gather that Federalists and Anti-Federalists had different views about how powerful the judiciary should be? Uh, that's right. I think it's helpful to view the Judiciary Act of 1789 as uh, an early stage of a continuing debate that we have had over the role of the judiciary in the United States. Uh, the anti-federalists who favored state government and were apprehensive about federal power, and in particular uh, a strong judiciary, 
continue their debates after the Constitutional Convention in the halls of Congress in crafting the Judiciary Act of 1789. Uh, they wanted to restrict the court's role uh, beyond what the provisions of Article III allowed. The Federalists, on the other hand, were, were concerned about having a strong uh, judiciary and independent judiciary. And it was that tension between the independence of the federal courts and the concern that the courts might become too powerful that led to the, the brokering of the compromises that we see in the Judiciary Act of 1789. Well, tell us about some of those compromises. What are the major provisions of the Judiciary Act, and how do they reflect that attempt to strike a balance between uh, federal power and state states' rights? Well, the, the Act contains... Uh, more than 25 provisions. I think it contains a total of about 30 provisions all told. And it uh, addresses not only the Supreme Court, but also the creation of lower federal courts, uh, the establishment of United States attorneys in each state, and it creates the Office of the Attorney General as well. Uh, the most important provisions today, I think, are viewed as the provisions that deal with the Supreme Court. Uh, the Article Three of the Constitution did not specify the number of justices there would be on the court, and the Judiciary Act chose the number six. I think history has taught us that even numbers are not favored in terms of the number of justices because it can lead to an equally divided court. But uh, the number six was chosen because of the overall organization of the judiciary. Uh, the Congress decided to break the United States into 11 districts, uh, one for each of the states that were then part of a union. Remember, at that time, uh, both South Carolina and Rhode Island had not yet ratified the Constitution. They, in turn, uh, organized those 11 states into three judicial districts, and they appointed two Supreme Court justices to each of those, uh, the three circuits. Uh, this, this is the northern, uh, the, the southern, and the middle district. Now, the arrangement here was quite unusual, that the justices would, of course, serve in Washington as the court of last resort, but they're also required to ride circuit, to travel out to the, the three circuits that were created and sit as trial judges and as appellate judges in those circuits. Now, this arrangement was done in part to make sure that the justices did not lose touch with people in the individual states. The idea was that the people... The states would see the justices in their localities, and the justices in turn would learn more about the state systems in which they traveled. And so the circuit riding was, in fact, one of the important provisions that the Anti-Federalists insisted on to ensure that the justices would stay connected to the individual states. Now, I gather that the justices themselves hated riding circuits. It was dangerous and tiring, and uh, John Jay, for example, uh, noted that he could find his way across the country by light of the burning effigies that were denouncing his uh, role in the in the Jay Treaty, even though he was the first Chief Justice. So, so tell us about some of the rigors of riding a circuit and why the why the justices disliked it so much. Oh, I think it's uh, I think it's uh, you know, not easy for us to appreciate how arduous circuit riding was at that time. Of course, the mode of travel was horseback or stagecoach. The the roads were very poor at that time. Uh, to complete the circuit in the, uh, the southern circuit uh, required a trip of 1,800 miles. And uh, oftentimes the 
justices weren't sure where they were going. Uh, they had to sleep in taverns at night, and uh, and it was the travel was was very very difficult. Uh, the story is well recounted about this in Claire Cushman's book Court Watchers. She has a number of the anecdotes from the justices' own papers about circuit riding. But I think some of the most interesting stories come from uh, Justice James Iredell. He was the last of the six justices to be appointed to the original Supreme Court. And he was not present when they made the circuit assignments. Uh, and so there's always a problem of not being present at a meeting, uh, <laughs> usually assigned to the, the, the least desirable tasks. And he was, in fact, assigned the Southern Circuit, and he and, and Judge Rutledge. And this was the most difficult circuit. And he truly did hate it and complained about it incessantly. Uh, he suggested that the justices should rotate from one circuit to another, but uh, Justice Jay, who was quite happy to be in the, the Northern Circuit, said no, they would stay uh, fixed. Uh, Justice Iredell did what uh, uh, what savvy judges of that era did. He had a brother-in-law who was a senator, and he saw to the passage of a law two years later that required there be rotation among the justices so he could get out of the Southern Circuit uh, circuit duties. Uh, but the justices themselves continued to press Congress for relieving them of the circuit, uh, circuit writing responsibilities, uh, but Congress was quite steadfast in refusing to do so, and that became even more so uh, when the, when the, the Jeffersonians uh, achieved a majority in, in, in Congress, and they, they felt that justices should continue to write circuit. And when did circuit writing finally end, and why? Well, it... It did not fully end until the passage of the Everts Act in 1891, which created a system of regional courts of appeals. We forget that back in the uh, early history, there were, we had our district courts and circuit courts, but those were both, both primarily courts of first instance. They're trial courts, and one had a right of appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, after the Civil War, as federal legislation expanded, as... Uh, the responsibilities of the federal court grew as the population grew. Uh, the court fell, the Supreme Court fell far behind in its work, and uh, petitioned Congress to create an intermediate court of appeals. Uh, that was done in the Everts Act in 1891, and that is what effectively led to true relief from the justices from writing circuit. At that point, there were permanent court of appeals judges, in the uh, at that time ten circuit courts of appeals who would then handle the appeals, and the Supreme Court would hear appeals from those circuit courts. Uh, it must have greatly uh, simplified the administration. Um, tell us about one of the most controversial provisions of the original Judiciary Act, Section 25, which gave the Supreme Court jurisdiction to hear appeals from the decisions of the, the highest state courts when there were constitutional uh, questions involved. How, how, how did that play out early on? Well, I, it, it's interesting that the, the anti-federalists were successful in limiting the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court uh, far more strictly than what Article Three allowed. Uh, appellate jurisdiction was provided uh, from uh, state court decisions that either invalidated a federal statute or that upheld a state stat statute in response to a federal challenge. Uh, so the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court was quite limited and designed primarily to protect the, those important federalist interests, uh, 
when federal constitutional issues were involved. Uh, on the, among the federal courts, the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court was even more limited. There was no general federal question jurisdiction in the federal courts. All cases had to be brought, all federal question cases had to be brought in state courts. Uh, the federal courts were primarily concerned with uh, admiralty jurisdiction, uh, cases in which the United States was a party, and uh, a limited number, very limited number of crimes. But even in the criminal area, there was no right of appeal to the Supreme Court in criminal cases. Uh, under the Double Jeopardy Clause, if a defendant was acquitted, that was the end of the matter. Uh, but if the defendant was convicted, there was no right of appeal. And this reflected the framers' concerns about the sanctity of jury verdicts and the importance that, uh, that uh, in criminal matters, individuals be judged, whether guilty or not guilty, uh, by a jury of their peers. Fascinating. So uh, it was perhaps because of the limited uh, jurisdiction of the Supreme Court that made the job of Chief Justice uh, a rather tepid one, and, and uh, President Washington had, had trouble actually getting people to accept the job. But that changed after Chief Justice John Marshall uh, took the chair, and uh, in particular the case of Marbury versus Madison, which uh, some of us remember uh, distantly from law school, but involved the Judiciary Act and established the Supreme Court's power to strike down unconstitutional laws. It's a riveting story, and uh, no one better than you to tell it. So give us, uh, first of all, the, the facts, as a, as a law professor would say, of Marbury versus Madison. What was the, what was the battle between President Jefferson and, and John Marshall that led to the case, what was the, and what was the Judiciary Act's uh, central role in Marshall's opinion? Well, let's begin with the Judiciary Act, because there's a, there's a wonderful irony here that although the anti-federalists were anxious to limit the jurisdiction of the federal courts, they did expand it in one respect that, that was quite noteworthy. They allowed in Section 13 for parties to bring mandamus actions directly in the Supreme Court as an original matter. Now, a mandamus action... Yes, go ahead. A mandamus action is basically uh, seeking the relief of a court to order a government official to, to do his or her duty. It's, it's an action that's brought when there's uh, a party complains that a government official is not doing some responsibility they're required to perform. And the Judiciary Act provided that if a federal official was not fulfilling a duty, a person could file suit directly in the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court would serve as the trial court, in essence, and could order the relief uh, in the form of ordering that government official to perform the act they're required to perform. Now, that set the stage for the, the famous case of Marbury v. Madison. Uh, Justice, Chief Justice John Marshall had recently been appointed uh, Chief Justice by John Adams. As, as you mentioned, Jeff, uh, it was difficult to find Chief Justices at that time, believe it or not. Uh, Chief Justice John Jay uh, uh, resigned from the bench and became governor of New York, feeling that that was a much better position than chief justice, uh, given the, the, the meager caseload and the, the, the lack of importance of the court at that time. Uh, John Rutledge was nominated by uh, President Washington in Jay's place. Uh, he was made actually a recess appointment, uh, but was defeated he 
served only one session of court. He was uh, his nomination did not receive the uh, consent of the Senate, and uh, he was not confirmed. Uh, Washington then turned. Just on Rutledge, I, I gather that he actually jumped off a wharf in a failed suicide attempt when he heard about the Senate vote and was rescued by two slaves. Yes, there is that that story. In fact, that he was so despondent over over not uh, not uh, being confirmed. Uh, his uh, Washington followed by. Uh, going to Oliver, Oliver Ellsworth, the drafter of both the Connecticut Compromise, as you mentioned, and the uh, Judiciary Act, and asked him to serve chief, as Chief Justice, and he agreed, and he was promptly confirmed. Uh, he served for a few years, but he was in ill health at that time, and he retired uh, while in France, uh, actually negotiating a treaty on behalf of Washington. Uh, at this time, Pres uh, John Adams had become president by the time of... of uh, Ellsworth's retirement, and he asked uh, his Secretary of State, John Marshall, to serve as Chief Justice, and John Marshall agreed. Uh, he was, of course, uh, a, a patriot, a well-known Federalist, uh, had the respect of Washington and Adams and, and many others, and he, of course, is credited with really uh, making the Supreme Court the institution it is today, you know, so he's often referred to as the uh, the, the great Chief Justice. And it was Marbury v. Madison that really established that reputation. Uh, the case of Marbury v. Madison came about because at the close of the Adams administration, Adams had lost his bid for re-election uh, to uh, Thomas Jefferson, uh, there were a number of judicial vacancies, and Adams set to filling them before his term of office expired. Uh, the, at that time, the Federalists were still in control of Congress, and so he was able to get rapid approval of his appointments. Uh, but there was the last step that was required, which was the delivery of the commissions to the various judges and justices of the peace who were being appointed. Uh, that responsibility fell to the Secretary of State, who was, in fact, John Marshall. John Marshall had been selected as Chief Justice. Uh, but he was also serving as Secretary of State at the close of the Adams administration. Uh, Marshall received the, uh, the commissions. He placed the seal of the Department of State on them, and he turned them over to others to be delivered, including his brother, uh, his brother James. Uh, some of those commissions were not delivered before the Adams term of office expired. And when Thomas Jefferson became president. He found the undelivered commissions, and uh, he took no action uh, to have them delivered. Uh, his Secretary of State was James Madison, and Madison likewise took no action on the uh, delivery of the commissions. Uh, that led one of the, uh, the judges who had been nominated but had not received the commission to sue and to invoke the mandamus provisions of the Judiciary Act of 1789. Uh, he brought suit in, directly in the Supreme Court. Uh, he brought the suit against uh, Secretary of State Madison and demanded that Madison fulfill his obligation to deliver the commission. Uh, the judge here, his name was uh, William Marbury. Uh, he was appointed as a Justice of the Peace, uh, and in fact, he was a prominent Washington citizen. Uh, his house still stands in Georgetown. I think it's currently used as... Uh, Ukrainian embassy, in fact. Uh, but in any event, uh, 
Marbury brought the suit. It took a great deal of time for it to to proceed because of various steps that uh, Congress took with regard to the Supreme Court's jurisdiction. It took over a year before the case was finally heard. Uh, Madison did not enter appearance. His uh, his uh, the Attorney General uh, did not appear at the case, and so it was a case in which uh, uh, simply Marbury's attorney appeared and made the argument in favor of uh, the court ordering Madison to deliver the commission. And it was in this case that uh, Chief Justice Marshall delivered the famous opinion in Marbury v. Madison. And it basically held, he held first that yes, there was uh, a right to the delivery of the commission. Uh, second, that whenever there is a right, uh, a court should provide a remedy, uh, but concluded that the court could not provide a remedy in this case because the Judiciary Act's grant of mandamus jurisdiction exceeded the jurisdiction that Article Three allowed. Uh, Article Three allowed original jurisdiction only in limited cases, such as cases between states and cases in which a foreign minister was involved. Mark, uh, uh, Marshall concluded that the Judiciary Act uh, was unconstitutional in granting mandamus jurisdiction and uh, held that the court was powerless to give relief in this case. Uh, what is significant about the case is that it was the first time that the court stated that the Supreme Court had the power to nullify acts of Congress that were unconstitutional. Nothing in the Constitution provided that, uh, but as Chief Justice Marshall explained, it was elemental to the role of a court to be able to do that. And so that decision is credited with establishing the right of judicial review in the Supreme Court. That was beautifully told. I've heard the Marbury story a bunch of times, and you brought out both the human details and the, and the legal arguments very precisely. Um, and obviously, as an act of judicial statesmanship, Marbury was uh, a tour de force. John Marshall avoided confronting his rival, Thomas Jefferson, who might have ignored an order to deliver the commission, but at the same time, he shored up judicial authority in the long term by establishing this power, as you said, of judicial review. Tell us about the reaction to Marbury. Ellsworth and the authors of the Judiciary Act, did they uh, criticize uh, Marshall for questioning its constitutionality, or was the decision accepted without too much fuss? Well, you know, the first reactions, of course, came from the press. And at that time, the, you had the Federalist press and, and the Anti-Federalist press, and they reacted quite pre predictably. Uh, the Federalist press, uh, by and large, uh, credited Marshall with a, a great genius in, uh, in recognizing the power of the court to declare acts unconstitutional. Some of the short-sighted Federalists were disappointed uh, and criticized him for not upholding the right of Marbury to receive his commission. Uh, but there were also journalists who recognized the long-term importance of the case as well. Uh, the the, the so-called anti-federalist press, the Democrat-Republican press, uh, they took a very different view. Uh, they um, Again, they were divided. Those with a short-term perspective applauded the fact that uh, the Federalist judges did not receive their commissions, but those with a longer-term perspective saw that this, in fact, would strengthen the judiciary uh, over time. 
And uh, I, we do know that uh, Madison, I don't believe, ever made a statement about the outcome of the case, nor did Marbury. But Thomas Jefferson felt very strongly about the matter. He was, of course, a cousin of John Marshall, but they were not by no means friends and very different political persuasions. And uh, Jefferson was highly critical of the of the decision and felt it was uh, it overstepped the, the power of the court to to claim sole responsibility for declaring an act of Congress constitutional or unconstitutional. Uh, not friends by any means, as you say. They had all sorts of wonderful insults for each other. I gather that uh, Marshall called Jefferson the great llama of the mountain, which seems cruel, although it's not clear what it means. And, uh, and, and, and Jefferson accused Marshall of twistifications and said, if he asked me the time of day, I'll reply, I don't know, sir, I can't tell, because he always felt Marshall twisted facts against him. Um, as a scholar of the press, I'm fascinated to hear your reaction. Uh, was it more or less polarized than our press today? How, how fractious were the were the journalistic reactions to, to Marbury? I I think it was just as polarized at that time. I, you know, I, I think that we forget that the the power of the press was not just the power to report, but also to editorialize. And so you you did find that the newspapers were. Uh, were very much aligned with particular views, and I would say perhaps even more so than today. Uh, the the uh, I was just looking at uh, a few of the, the the press responses that I, I've just laid my my hands on here. Uh, to give you an example, a newspaper called The Federalist stated about Marbury v. Madison: "The opinion will remain a." as a monument to the wisdom, impartiality, and independence of the Supreme Court, long after the names of the petty revilers shall have sunk into oblivion. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I think petty uh, revilers should be revived. Uh, but some, some newspapers, like the Aurora, which was, a, you know, which was an anti-Federalist newspaper, said, uh, had this, said this, the, the weight of Chief Justice Marshall's authority calmed the tumult of faction, and he stood as, the, as he must continue to stand as a star of the first magnitude. Now that was the, you know, the, the newspaper assi- you know, aligned with the opposite political party. Uh, others took, you know, a, a, you know, a more, uh, shall we say, sensationalist approach. I'm looking at the New York Evening Post, a Federalist newspaper. Its headline: "Constitution Violated by the President." Uh, while the Argus, which is a Republican paper, said this: "The opinion is a hideous monster." Its head in the rear, its tail in front, its legs mounted on high to support the burden. Uh, so there was, you know, the the, the, the journalists certainly uh, were were quite bold in their statements about the case, and it certainly, you know, did uh, receive high attention throughout the uh, throughout the major newspapers. Those are wonderful quotations. I think uh, if writing were that uh, vivid on the blogosphere, we'd be in we'd be in good shape. Uh, let me ask you this: What was the reaction to Marshall's claim that the court had the power to strike down unconstitutional laws? Was that controversial or accepted? You know, I think it was controversial. Uh, in fact, the you know the genius of John Marshall is that he he took this step in a case in which he was actually restrict, restricting the powers of the judiciary, and in many ways, I think that made the decision much more acceptable. He was not limiting the president's power. He was not limiting uh, 
Congress's power. Rather, he was limiting the power of the court to rule on a sensitive matter involving uh, the executive branch. Um, the matter continued. That the question of so-called judicial supremacy and interpretation has continued to be an issue uh, it, through the time of Andrew Jackson, with, of course, the, uh, the, the Indian removal matter where the, the Native American people of, of Georgia were removed, uh, notwithstanding a Supreme Court decision uh, upholding their rights, uh, it, it's an important reminder that the, it takes more than simply the opinion of the court to establish its authority, but also the, uh, the support of the coordinate branches and of the public at large. There, there must be that public confidence that the court is, in fact, acting as a judicial body and fairly administering the laws. Uh, Jackson reportedly, although uh, perhaps apocryphally, uh, r responded to Marshall's uh, Cherokee Indian decision, John Marshall has made his decision, now let him enforce it. Uh, did, did Jackson actually say that? I don't think we know if he actually said it, but I bet he thought it. <laughs> that's, that's great. And you made such an interesting point by noting that Marshall did not assert a general power of the courts to strike down all unconstitutional laws, but only those affecting judicial authority. At what point did the notion of judicial review get broadened to uh, its current uh, rather expansive uh, notion? Well, it's remarkable that there was not another case involving in which the court struck down an act of Congress as contrary to the Constitution until 1857. And of course, that was the, the, the grievous mistake of Dred Scott. Uh, until that time, although Marshall established that power, he held it in abeyance. Uh, he did not, he, neither his court nor uh, the Taney court uh, found any other act of Congress unconstitutional until the time of Dred Scott. And of course, uh, you know, the discussion of Dred Scott is a discussion for another day, but it suggested that, uh, uh, you know, Chief Justice Taney you know, overstepped uh, the, the bounds of what the court should do, and uh, it led to you know lack of confidence in the court that persisted for for certainly years and even decades thereafter. Um, since that time, of course, uh, the court has exercised that authority. I think more guardedly, it has uh, you know acted to to strike down acts of Congress that exceed constitutional limits, but it's always done so. I think, and at least in this century and the 20th century very guardedly noting that this is the most sensitive power that the court has to, to tell a co-ordinate branch of government that it's exceeded constitutional limits. Tell us more about the Judiciary Act itself. Uh, you've mentioned the end of circuit riding. How else has the Judiciary Act changed over time? Uh, were there changes proposed that never passed? Are there, are there currently any proposals for reform? Basically, you've described this rather limited grant of authority to the federal courts initially. Uh, how did the Judiciary Act change in ways that expanded that authority? Well, I, I think the three most important changes uh, are, are these. First two we've already spoken about. One was the end of circuit writing. Uh, the, by, when Congress eliminated circuit writing and created the Intermediate Courts of Appeals, it allowed the Supreme Court to focus on what should be its primary role, the adjudication of important national disputes. Uh, but that was not complete 
with the enactment of the Everett Act, creating the Courts of Appeals, uh, that was only a stopgap measure because the Supreme Court was still basically a, a court for the correction of error. Uh, it was obligated to hear any case uh, that was filed with the court over which the court had jurisdiction. Uh, the next important step after the eliminating of circuit writing and the, the creation of the Intermediate Courts of Appeals took place in 1925, and that was the... Uh, the Judiciary Act of 1925 that established certiorari jurisdiction. Uh, this was uh, a proposal from Chief Justice and former President William Howard Taft, who felt that uh, the court could not answer every case that was filed uh, with it without wasting its resources on many cases of little consequence. And the, the 1925 Act empowered the court to select what cases it would hear through the grant of a, a writ of certiorari. And a writ of certiorari is basically a request for the court to hear the case. Uh, prior to that time, in most cases, one filed what was known as a writ of error. You simply told the court that an error had been made in the court below and the court was obligated to decide the case. But under the so-called certiorari jurisdiction, a party must first petition the court to request the right of review. Uh, now, that has been essential in the court dealing with the large caseload that it has. It receives 8,000 requests for review each year, but it only hears 80 or 90 cases. And the certiorari jurisdiction allows it to focus on the most important cases, uh, those cases that, in which the lower courts are divided, in which you know, truly present issues of national importance. But maybe it brings us full circle to you know, where we started with the Judiciary Act of 1789. That of course, at that time, the, the problem with the court is it had very few cases, very limited jurisdiction, and very little importance. And what we see from 1789 to the present is this evolution of the court into a body of, which is, I think, truly a co-equal co branch, which carries out important responsibilities, and does so in a the very limited context of selecting the cases that are most important for review. And, and what were the most important factors in making the court the co-equal body that it is today? You've talked about Marbury, and you've talked about uh, the 1925 Act. Were there any other crucial landmarks that made the modern court uh, the court that we know? Well, I, I think it's important to remember that the, 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 the court back in 1789 and today is a passive institution. Uh, it is in, in many respects subject to uh, the circumstance and circumstances that are created by the other two branches of government. I think the Supreme Court has become more important over time because the federal government has become more important. Uh, after the Civil War, with the passage of the, uh, the, the important civil rights amendments, uh, the growth of the nation from a nation of less than 4 million people in 1789 to 330 million people today. It calls for a much stronger national government with more federal legislation. And when there is more federal law, there is an important, more important role for the Supreme Court uh, to adjudicate disputes under those laws. So I think much of the importance of the Supreme Court actually arises from the growth and complexity of our own country as, as, a, as a, a nation and not simply uh, a 
union of 13 original states. Wonderful. Well, I would love to continue, but it's, it's time for closing arguments. Uh, so why should our listeners care about the Judiciary Act of 1789 on its 225th birthday? Well, oh, thanks, Jeff. I, w I would just say, say this modestly. I think that the Judiciary Act was the beginning of a debate that continues to this day. And as we've seen how our courts have evolved over 225 years, uh, it gives us some perspective uh, that they will continue to adapt and change over the next 200 years. Uh, this is an ongoing dialogue that we have about uh, the role of the courts in our society, the role of judicial independence, uh, the, the appropriate role for a court in a, uh, in a government that consists of, of three coordinate branches. And I think by looking past to 1789, it does give us some perspective on what the future might hold. Well, Jeff Manier, thank you so much for a wonderful conversation. You've so vividly brought to life this fascinating constitutional history. Uh, with your permission, I would love to appoint you a visiting historian to the National Constitution Center and hope that we can uh, resume these podcasts and entice you back to discuss uh, some Supreme Court history in the future. Uh, until then, please join us for the next of our We the People constitutional podcasts for the National Constitution Center. I'm Jeffrey Rosen.